I'm Andy Otto, up next on Thought Press. Rescuing continues in Pakistan to recover from the earthquake, while bad weather is hampering efforts. President Bush says the United States will assist in any way. Pakistan's a friend, and America will help. Iraq held its referendum vote for the new constitution, and it was a good turnout despite threats. We'll take you there as people lined up early to vote. Results are expected soon, but there is still uncertainty as to what the plan of action is to remove troops. We're so frustrated by the president's failure to give the American people clear answers. Pope Benedict gathered with thousands of children at the Vatican. Also, the recent talk about energy has got many wondering, how can I save electricity and energy? We'll visit a solar home. The avian bird flu has spread even further. Is it safe to have a Thanksgiving turkey? We'll see what the threat is. Finally, let's go back to 1964, where the Winter Olympics opens in Japan exactly 41 years ago. All this next on Thought Press. I'm Andy Otto. Thanks for listening. Whether on your commute or at home, Thought Press brings things together for you, on demand or whenever you decide. For the moment, we've discontinued our enhanced version of this podcast. If you listen to it, let us know through our website. We might bring it back. It allows you in iTunes or on your iPod to skip to different sections of the podcast. Email us at thoughtpress at gmail.com. Our voice line is also open for your thoughts 24 hours a day. Just call 206-33-THINK. Again, that's 206-338-4465. Let's begin with a rundown of the latest on the Pakistani earthquake. The death toll has risen dramatically to 38,000 as rescue workers continue to work pulling thousands of bodies from collapsed buildings. Major General Shaukat Sultan says the death toll count is likely to increase as more bodies are discovered. Meanwhile, temperatures are dropping and residents are desperate. Snow is already falling. It's raining. What we need is tents and blankets. Freezing rain and storms are putting a damper on relief efforts. Supplies of tents are diminishing, making it difficult for people to stay dry. President Bush says he's going to make sure the United States helps Pakistan recover. Scott Stearns reports. After signing a condolence book at Pakistan's embassy in Washington, President Bush offered his sympathy. There's been a lot of loss of life, uh, and Americans pray for those families who have lost a loved one. been a lot of damage, and uh, we want to help in any way we can. Pakistan's been an important ally in the fight against the former Taliban rulers in Afghanistan and in the broader fight against terrorism. President Bush telephoned Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf shortly after the killer quake and says he told him of America's commitment to help. Pakistan's a friend, and America will help. We've moved a lot of military equipment to the area. We're helping with humanitarian aid as well. And so not only will we offer our prayers, but we'll offer our help. Pakistani officials say search and rescue operations for any survivors have ended, and the effort now is to provide relief for millions of people who are hungry and left out in the open. Scott Stearns at the White House. There are still many villages trapped behind blocked roads and rugged mountain peaks that have still not received any assistance.
Iraq had a good and peaceful turnout on the 15th for the referendum vote on the Constitution. And even though there were threats, the majority of eligible voters lined up early to vote. Alicia Rue takes us there. Iraqi election officials say that at least eight of Iraq's 18 provinces had a turnout of more than 66 percent, and seven posted a moderate turnout of more than 33 percent. The officials say the expected overall turnout rate would surpass the 58 percent recorded during January's elections, when an overwhelming number of Shiite Muslims and Kurds defied insurgent violence and went to the polls to elect a new interim government. Iraq's Sunni Arab community largely boycotted January elections, and as a result, had little representation in the current interim government and limited input in the committee that drafted the constitution. Preliminary figures show that this time, a large number of Sunni Arabs joined Shiites and Kurds in participating in the referendum. But unlike most Shiites and Kurds, the majority of Sunnis say they voted no for a constitution they say has the potential to start a civil war. A Sunni voter in Ghazaliyah who did not want to be identified says he could not support a divisive constitution, which he says gave oil wealth to Shiites and Kurds and left nothing for the Sunni people. In the so-called Sunni Triangle area south of Baghdad, hundreds of Sunni residents streamed out of polling centers, proudly holding up their right index finger stained with purple ink to show that they had voted. Kiam Abid Muhammad Ali, who volunteered to work at a polling site in the insurgent town of Mahmudia, says people lined up to vote long before the polls opened at seven o'clock Saturday morning. Ms. Ali says concerns about violence marring the referendum did not keep the people in the area from wanting to participate, but she says the lack of violence Saturday really boosted people's confidence to come out and vote. For most of the day, the only sound that could be heard around Baghdad was that of U.S. military helicopters flying overhead and American troops in Humvee vehicles rattling down streets in patrols. A strict ban on cars emptied streets and highways, turning them into playgrounds for children to ride bicycles and to play soccer. At polling sites, Iraqi soldiers and police watched from nearby rooftops and entrances as voters arrived on foot and were carefully body searched at least three times before being allowed inside. The deputy commander of Iraqi armed forces, Lieutenant General Nasir Abadi, believes weeks of military operations against insurgents and foreign fighters in Baghdad and in western Anbar province has severely disrupted their ability to launch attacks. They're out of steam. They've got nothing to hit us with now. A simple majority is needed to approve the constitution. A two-thirds no vote in three provinces will defeat it. If the constitution is approved, that will pave the way for elections in December for a permanent government. If it fails, parliament will have to be dissolved, and a new interim assembly will have to be elected in December to draw up another constitution. Alicia Rue, Baghdad. The election results are expected soon. President Bush says Iraqi voters are striking a blow against the terrorists for voting. By casting their ballots, the Iraqi people deal a severe blow to the terrorists and send a clear message to the world: Iraqis will decide the future of their country through peaceful elections, not violent insurgency. Retired Democratic Army General Wesley Clark says President Bush has failed to involve more Sunni Arabs in building a consensus about a new government, and he needs to be more specific about how many Iraqi troops are needed to stay in Iraq. We understand what's at stake in Iraq, and that's why we're so frustrated 
by the President's failure to give the American people clear answers to basic questions. Mr. Bush is long overdue in providing a plan to achieve Iraqi military sufficiency. Again, a simple majority vote is needed to approve the Constitution. The Pope the other day held his first major children's festival in Rome, which drew over 100,000 people. Children and parents joined Pope Benedict in St. Peter's Square and welcomed him by dancing and waving flags. He had invited all children who had just celebrated their first communion and answered questions about the Eucharist. Before leaving, the Pope wished them a happy Sunday. Grazie. Grazie per questa festa della fede. Thank you for this feast of faith, he said. Thank you for this meeting between us and with Jesus. The crowd was festive as children sang and prayed together. To many, this was a reminder of the gatherings Pope John Paul II had with young people. We're talking about energy lately, and more importantly, saving energy. In fact, on our last program, we talked about the costs of heating your home this winter. But there are more things you can do than wearing heavier clothes or cutting down on your driving. This past October 1st was National Solar Tour Day, when people across the United States could tour solar-powered homes. But how does one get started on such a project of making your home solar-powered? Roseanne Skirbel takes us to one home on the national tour. Last year, solar energy surpassed wind power as the fastest-growing alternative energy source in the world. While solar products account for only a tiny fraction of the electricity produced in the United States, new federal legislation, coupled with state programs, are helping to promote growth in the industry. Each year, thousands of Americans get a chance to explore solar alternatives in the National Solar Tour. This year, energy-efficient homes and buildings in hundreds of communities across the United States were open for public view. Twenty-five years ago, Michael and Virginia Spivak built a new home on an empty lot in Washington. They wanted a house that got its energy from the sun. Mrs. Spivak says the open floor plan promotes natural heating and cooling. The floor is dark quarry tile. Which helps absorb the heat from the sun in the summer. I mean, in the winter, and then it reflects back into the house at night. The walls are light colored, which helps reflect light, so we don't need as many lights on. The windows are mostly on the south, and they ha- there's a two-foot overhang, so that when the sun is high in the sky in the summer, the house is shaded by the overhang, and in the winter, the sun can come in. Other features include bookcases and quilts against the walls to provide added insulation. The Spivaks also have a solar water heater, and they recently purchased photovoltaic panels for their roof. The house is connected to the local electric grid, but the family gets a credit from the power company for the energy they produce. Mrs. Spivak says the house has been good to the environment and to their pocketbook. 
The hot water clearly has paid for itself probably two or three times over by now. And the photovoltaics, we didn't really expect we would get the payback, but we decided that was worth it. And to decrease the carbon dioxide and all the other things, that it would be worth it. Mrs. Spivak says their commitment to energy efficiency has not met a major change in lifestyle. You have a lot of choices when you try and have a more energy efficient house. You can have a house that basically does everything itself and you don't even know that you have a house any different from any other house. We decided that we didn't mind doing a few simple things and so our house function, even if we did nothing and someone just w moved into this house, they could do fine without doing anything and it would be more efficient, energy efficient than most houses. But there are other things you can do that make it work even better. Close to 90 visitors toured the Spivak's home on the 2005 solar home tour. Many, drawn by rising home heating and cooling bills, wanted to see the energy-saving technologies in action. I think it's very interesting. I've never seen a solar house and just wanted to try to get some um, insight on the real-life experience of it. Is this something that you think you may do? We're going to talk about it. I just have to you know, work the numbers. Uh, I live in D.C., but I'm building a small apartment building in Frederick, Maryland. And I'm interested in uh, putting in some kind of solar application there. Just It's just the right thing to do. I've always been interested in, in solar homes. I'm just trying to take in and learn as much as I can. While the Spivak House is the exception rather than the rule among American homes, some state and local jurisdictions offer grants and tax incentives to homeowners for the purchase of renewable or energy-efficient products. More than 20 states require utility companies to get a portion of their electricity from renewable sources. But Peter Lowenthal says that's not enough. He heads the Solar Energy Industries Association in Washington, a local sponsor of the 2005 Solar Home and Building Tour. While he applauds the solar tax credit and the new energy bill, he says the law falls short of what the solar industry needs to grow a market for its products. Unfortunately, the credit only lasts for two years. Of all the tax credits that were passed in the energy bill, um, fortunately, ours are short-lived. So we have a significant battle to try to extend them for more than five years because to, for the business community to go into investing into uh, developing the market and, and, and ramping up manufacturing and establishing dealer networks across the country is an expensive process. And for a two-year window, that's not, not a very good choice. Mr. Lowenthal says greater price incentives and increased consumer awareness about energy-saving alternatives will help lower the nation's power bill and reduce its dependency on fossil fuels that pollute the environment. I'm Roseanne Skirbel. For more on solar-powered homes, there's a great website about a house in Maine, including all the information and resources you need to get started, including costs. Just head to thoughtpress.blogspot.com for more. Now, just a brief note, the AP reports the bird flu can be expected to spread to other countries. It's already made it to Europe. In Turkey and Romania, there were aggressive efforts to rid the virus. Thousands of birds were killed in eastern Romania. So far, there are 60 human deaths due to the H5N1 virus, but those have mainly been result of human contact with birds. In Turkey, about 10,000 birds were killed, and any outbreak there has been contained. But where will the avian bird flu head next? 
The World Health Organization says Northern Africa is next. Dr. Michael Ryan of the WHO says, quote, These introductions in Europe do not represent a worrying development. We may see introductions into further countries over the coming weeks, end quote. But so far the bird flu is a problem focused mainly on Asia. As for whether or not to still have turkey for Thanksgiving, the CDC says that's okay since infected poultry is banned from the United States and cooking kills any viruses. So no worries about your Thanksgiving traditions. All right, we haven't done this in a while. Let's go back to an old newsreel from 41 years ago this month, to 1964, where we hear about the opening of the 18th Winter Olympics in Tokyo. Tokyo is dressed in her holiday best for the opening of the 18th Modern Olympics, the first to be held in the Far East. At the National Stadium, there's a capacity crowd of 75,000 present for the opening ceremonies that precede 20 different sports events among athletes from 94 nations. The United States contingent of 330 men and girls is warmly applauded, and the male members are singled out by their jaunty western hats. The Russians follow the U.S. team, their arch rivals in Olympic competition. There are 5,541 entrants in this year's games, a near record. As the host nation, the Japanese enter last. The Japanese have spent $2 billion to welcome their guests, and not a taxpayer has complained out loud. Then the teams line up on the infield as Emperor Hirohito declares the games officially opened. As the 124th Emperor of Japan welcomes everyone to the Olympiad, the ringed flag is raised. Then the spotlight shifts to Yoshinori Sakai, who circles the track carrying the torch that was lit at the Olympic site in Greece and drawn here by a relay of thousands of runners. He mounts 154 steps to the pedestal that holds the Olympic cauldron. Sakai was born 40 miles from Hiroshima on the day the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb. He might stand as a symbol of peace among nations through friendly competition, just as the roaring Olympic flame brightens international horizons every four years. 8,000 pigeons are released to blacken the sky in majestic flight. May all nations find greater understanding through sports. I'm Andy Otto. Thanks for listening to Thought Press. You may follow up with links or stories mentioned on this program through our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. If you have suggestions or comments or would like to be heard on ThoughtPress, call us at 206-33-THINK or email thoughtpress at gmail.com. Our number again is 206-338-4465. Our audio is hosted by archive.org and select contents provided by Voice of America. Don't forget to visit our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. Thanks.